You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. My name is, if I haven't met you, my name is Carl Gaelic, and I am the backup quarterback uh, <laughs> to our uh, main star. I just learned, <clears throat> we're going to have to renegotiate, John. I just learned that the uh, backup quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, the backup quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, gets $18 million a year. <laughs> to do what? To do what? To be a backup. Yeah. So that's what I'm taking my cue. So next time it counts... <laughs> Next time the council me. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. I'm hoping to get uh, more results than that. Anyway, so uh, it is my uh, privilege to bring the word of the Lord. Uh, is uh, on occasion to give John a break, and this week focusing on finals and all of this ministry and Florida Gulf Coast. So thank you for that, for all the ministry to students and for all the conversations that are never make it public or in, in the sermons for the... Uh, listening to incredible stories that you can't tell anyone <laughs> and uh, all the ministry that's yours. So thank you for your love and gift to the students. It's my joy to come back and do this. So, yep, we are in a Florida Christmas. And the point of that is to try to identify how all of the romance of I'm dreaming of a white Christmas is just that. Romance has nothing to do with biblical realities or truth at all. And uh, I grew up in Chicago, so I'm used to the white Christmas, and uh, we're going to be up there again this year, and, and I've lived in Florida long enough to hope that I don't have a white Christmas. Uh, but that's kind of the point. We're going to do this, this journey here. Let's see. Oops, I've got to turn it on. Oh, I know how to do that. Got it. All right. So our journey today is going to be called Sandy Claus. Uh, if, if you think that's pretty clever, you're, you're welcome. If you don't, John gave it to me. Uh, and, uh, and, and I didn't do that. I'm ready to throw him under the bus at a moment's notice. It just didn't go well. Uh, uh, but the subtitle's mine. I'm, I'm all about subtitles. What to do when God makes astronomical promises. And part of the issue is God, and we're going to take a look at this in Prophet Jeremiah, is God will make promises around this time of year, that we celebrate this time of year, that were phenomenal, literally astronomical. And I would offer to you that they're one of the greater burdens in work because they are so phenomenal, so gargantuan. I'm running out of adjectives. So crazy that a few things can happen. You kind of move in the direction of, what? kind of dismissive, or the other is kind of get lost in it. We're going to walk through that today. The hardest thing in 40-plus years of ministry, somebody asked me, is trusting God in the pit. Let me give you a little sense of what I mean by that. Um, Sometimes I was in the pit in ministry and family and living and in life, whether it was the death of uh, loved ones or my dad or family troubles or issues. And there's an inherent why God in all of that, isn't there? And it's particularly struggle for Christians and those who are dedicated to it because I would know that I, I should be better than to question God's judgment or providence or love or grace, but I would still do it. And so there's this sense of 
uh, where did all of the seminary training, where did all the preaching, where did all the teaching, where did all the life and love and conversations that, that I had with people along the way, where did that go now, and why am I doubting all of a sudden? Um, but even harder than that, even harder than those times was ministry to others in the pit was exhausting. Here's why. Pastors are exposed, like a lot of folks are, to uh, families going through horrendous issues. Uh, and I won't walk you through in, uh, in just a second. There's addiction struggles, sudden death, accidents, uh, spiritual issues and doubting. And there is a temptation to go quick to the pocket and pull out a pastoral bromide. <laughs> and I was warned at seminary to be careful to be too quick to pastoral bromides. Those are things which sound religious, but are actually quite distancing and keep me and you from engaging in them. So things that you hear around funerals are some of these pastoral bromides. Somebody has died suddenly. God must have needed another angel in heaven. Ooh. Oh, that just grinds with me. If you said that, please stop saying that. The issue that typically happens is that when we get close to people's pain, we get close to the unanswerable questions of suffering in our world, when our own heart begins to ache and struggle, we look for some way to distance ourselves with sounding religious and confirming. Another way is to get caught up in it. The other side of the same coin, and so much of the struggle is to just get right down in the pit with them without any hope. Oh, woe is me. I would give up hope, too. I understand what you're going through. And the probability is you don't, I don't, we don't. So the, the struggle and the, the difficulty and the angst that I would face would be to not go for a pastoral bromide and dismiss and not get caught up in it because I would not be able to function. That's kind of the point here that we're going to get with Jeremiah. Before we get to the scriptures on Jeremiah, I want you to have some sense of this fact that Jeremiah is coming to us from the pit. This is the reason why we don't like this. One of our responses to the pit is the Hallmark movie. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm going to do that because my mom is a lover of Hallmark movies, and mom will probably be watching online. Sorry, mom. Uh, I'm going to do that. Um, what you get in the Hallmark movies is this reflex to uh, run through a certain pattern. And by the way, Hallmark movies are hugely productive. Uh, I've been associated with movies. I've got to be careful because I was in a Hallmark movie. I'll give you that in just a second. <laughs> literally, I literally was in it. Um, uh, I'll give you the longer story, but you ready? This is, this, this is my role. I'm sitting down, and Gina walks up the aisle, and I do this. Is that pretty good or what? Thank you, thank you. I had to find my motivation for that. Oh. I got about 18 million for that. 18 million what? Yeah. 18 million what? So what a Paul Hallmark movie does is kind of, because um, I, I was going to say that I used to have a personality, but I actually signed it away, a personality waiver to Hallmark, uh, because there was a Pastor Carl in the Hallmark movie we'll get to in a second. 
The, the whole phenomena here is that the Hallmark movie is designed to kind of package it in an acceptable fashion, make it acceptable, not have to engage it and do that. And I'm not against that per se. I mean, I'm not a personal fan of the Hallmark movie, but I, I get their call. And it's like my mom and many others, perhaps you as well, like I've read the news and talked about the issues and engaged the struggle. Just want a happy ending and Coco and Holly and something fun. And I, that's fine. I get that as a break. Part of what I did was engage is the color of rain is a book I ministered to a couple who was in the pit. Some of you may have heard this uh, back in the late 90s, was it? Early 2000s. Early 2000s. Um, Matt was 37 years old when he died of a rare genetic cancer and left behind two small boys. And Matt got to be a, a, a good friend of mine. And so I want to talk about practice walking in the pit is um, he was, was struggling with the fact that he knew he was going to die because everybody in his family who got this disease died. And he got it the youngest ever in his family. They were typically in the 50s and 60s. Matt was 37 when he died. He was popular in his community and it was probably the largest funeral I ever did. The uh, sanctuary was overflowing to chairs down the halls. It was just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, within a few weeks later, a classmate of his at the school in which I was teaching, Kathy, got a geoblastoma uh, brain tumor and died within six weeks. Michael Spain was left with um, four kids, three kids. Three, three kids, that's right. And Gina with two boys. And over five years, God brought them together. So I did both funerals, ended up doing lots of premarital <laughs> complex counseling, and ended up doing the wedding. And they wrote a book called The Color of Rain. Oops, there, there, there they are. So the, on the uh, out, outside is the, the movie stars, the Hallmark movie stars. Uh, doing that. Lacey, I forget her last name, and I don't remember the other guy. Uh, but um, Gina and Michael are the real people in the middle. And just as a, an aside, uh, I'm just astounded how much Gina and Lacey look alike. Don't they look alike? Yeah. Gina is the one in yellow, and Lacey's the movie star, and she's the one in maroon color brain. What's interesting is that uh, going from a life to the book to the Hallmark movie, and Mary Louise and I were invited out there to, uh, on the last shooting days to close out. And uh, they were absolutely astounded that somebody would get down in the pit with this family. They had no clue or understanding how that worked. And the guy who played Pastor Carl, which by the way, most critics say is not as good looking as, as I am. <laughs> but that's just me. So, um, yeah, that was just hearsay. So the uh, whole point there is that um, it, they tried to grapple with the phenomena of the, ha the happy ending and not getting into the pit, and it was, just, it was a struggle. Which, by the way, it was interesting is that Michael, when he wrote the book, talked about how God was a part of this whole thing. Um, but uh, Hallmark would not go for the mention of the name of Jesus except 
while the kids were singing a song in the movie in the sanctuary. So they found a way to create a witness and go through all that. So I, point of that is, look, I have seen the Hallmark movies. I understand them, the need to put a ribbon and a bow on it. And it was this life that helped me understand that. But this is uh, another picture. This one is a Rembrandt painting of the prophet Jeremiah. It's not a Hallmark movie. Uh, there's a few things that you need to take a look at here. Jeremiah is painted by Rembrandt is surrounded by darkness. You have to look down at him because Jeremiah is in a pit. The probability is that this pit isn't ugly or wicked or horrible enough because the kind of pit that uh, people were oftentimes thrown in was a pit that stopped providing water but still had enough mud at the bottom to be dangerous. So in Jeremiah 38, he was lowered down into a pit. Now imagine being, oh, who say, six feet or so up to here and, and stuff that you can't get a grip on and living life trying to find something solid to rest your head or your body or your mind and the constant thrashing that was going on. This was Jeremiah's world. Jeremiah was a part of a culture that we probably don't understand. It was full of political turmoil. <laughs> the Assyrians were uh, on their way out being conquered by the Babylonians. And uh, Jeremiah would step up and speak his mind, always politically incorrect. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because he was called young and he went reluctantly. Now, all this is set up because I want you to have some sense of the scriptures, the context and the text for the message is coming from a man who is in the pit called the weeping prophet, is about 500 years before the birth of the Messiah, is absolutely struggling with the politics of the day, is absolutely alienated by his countrymen and the people in power just are tired of hearing him. So Jeremiah's message isn't about hot cocoa and ivory, you know, ivy. His point is God visits you in the pit and then does something, makes outrageous promises. Not only visits you in the pit, makes outrageous promises. Let's listen to watch these. Here's the text for today. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Again, you got to figure, listen to the Lord talk to Jeremiah while Jeremiah is in a pit. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. So you're Jeremiah. You're listening to the word of the Lord bring this to you. What's your first thought? Yeah? When? How? What are we going to deal, who's going to deal with me in the 
pit. So this is the tension that I think the Christian is called to. This is the tension that wore me out in ministry, is that to get into somebody's pit of a life and then say, God is with you and loves you, and I want you and me together to believe into the promises that God has got for us. Without it sounding like, oh, God wanted another angel in heaven, but real and difficult. It's difficult. That's the context. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, will may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heavens cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priest who minister to me. So either it's unrecorded and Jeremiah said, what? Are you kidding me? Or Jeremiah had this look on his face like, I am in a pit. There's political turmoil. The Assyrians are going away. The Babylonians are coming to power. My friends have abandoned me. I could barely stand up and breathe and eat. And you're telling me, what? God doubles down on the promise and says, tell you what, the day and night, if that gets all screwed up and mixed up, then my promises won't come true. As long as day and night fall in order, my promises will come true. You're Jeremiah. What do you say to that? Okay. The days are coming when I will fulfill my promise. Do not overlook this one fact from 2 Peter. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This passage supplies a lot of information for me and a lot of help, and I also don't like it. <laughs> you know, it gives me some sense of, I would like the Lord's answer to my prayers in my time, in opportunity. And look at our sense of timing now. Somebody's at a light and it turns green, and in 0.5 seconds we don't go. What do you get as a somebody, at least in Chicago? You get a, you know. How many of you have slow computers? My point, you know, it's like, really? I mean, I get it, you know, doing that. Uh, my uh, nephew, not nephew, grandson is way into gaming, and he's showing me a uh, mouse that uh, actually has automatic tapping or touching. He can get 20 clicks a second out of it. I think that's great. I didn't know what to say. <laughs> so that's the context. And if Luke or Roman then listen to the scripture and go, yeah, but what they did with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. Meaning they all kind of span out. So to Jeremiah, the first little bit of message is, yeah, my timetable isn't yours. And if this is built into who God is. He lives in this timeless place. Uh, I, I love the encounter, too, between Moses and the burning bush. And uh, Moses has got all these excuses why he shouldn't have to go get his people out of Egypt. And, 
He says, well, first of all, I don't know your name. What's your name? And God gives him his name. His name is Yahweh, which means I am that I am. Again, I'm thinking Moses had the same face that Jeremiah did when he looked at it and went, what? Is that supposed to help me get to Egypt? I am that I am? And then Jesus shows that he's either trying to communicate the same message in the, in the New Testament in the Gospel of John, or that he's bad in grammar. Before Abraham was, I am. Huh? There's a timeless quality to it. So the promises of God come through not in clicks and bites and mill and nano and minutes and years and centuries. But 500 years later, after God had this conversation with Jeremiah in the pit, what God said came true. The Lord is not slow. It's all about the righteous and the righteous one. Righteousness is big with God because only those who are righteous can come into his presence. Inside of a pit, God is saying, no, my righteous one is going to come. In those days at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Objective justification, the fact that Jesus Christ would be our righteousness, and we would be declared righteous simply by believing in him, is birthed in, in intrinsically woven into the message of Jeremiah in the pit. Jeremiah, you don't have to worry about struggling and you don't have to worry about being getting out of here. You don't have to worry about any of that because I already have declared you righteous because of your belief in the coming Messiah. The joy and the relief and the freedom and the relaxation that that gives to those who are in the pit, meaning I'm not being punished. I remember when we started ministry way back when in I think we started ministering the 1800s in Deer. We were back in uh, Sulphur Springs, Texas, is where I started ministry. And uh, Mary Louise came home. She's a physical therapist, and we got a, got a job. And somebody was telling her that um, their husband said he that if she didn't obey, God would punish her. People living up in fear. Somebody asked me, one uh, asked, "Can I can I smoke?" In your church? And I went, no, there's no smoking in my church. No, no, no I, I know that. I know you can't. You gotta, smoke, you gotta smoke outside. No, I mean, can I smoke and go to, and be in your church? It took me a while to penetrate. And I go, you're not asking me if you can smoke inside. You're asking if you can be a smoker and still be a member. Yes, preacher. I don't think it's good for your health. I know it's not good for my health. Can I be a member? Yes, your membership in your eternal life, even the nature of the lungs that you bring are not dependent on whether you smoke or do or act. So the righteousness in God is key. God doubles down on the twin pillars of assurance. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to burn burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. 
So what you've got here going is God making a promise that the kingdom will always have a king and the priests will always have service. The twin pillars that are kind of built into the assumption of the proclamation and the promise are that David and his throne and the Levites and their offerings will constantly be available, will constantly continue, will be uninterrupted. And sure enough, we learn from lots of places, but here's in Revelation, Jesus is king. From, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Notice the powerful gospel message, freed us, completely done outside of us, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. 500 years before that, 2,000 years before that, God had in mind the kingship of his son and proclaimed it to Jeremiah in the pit. Jesus as priest was also identified, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The Levitical priests were the mediator between God and man and offered the sacrifices of purification and cleansing. Jesus Christ was that priest. On top of all that is this doubling down of an astronomical guarantee. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. So let's break that down. I also had a quote from the message. The message is a not a literal uh, translation, but kind of an interpretation of scriptures. I like it. It's pretty good. It says this, God says, if my covenant with day and my covenant with night ever fell apart so that day and night became haphazard, and you never knew which was coming and when, then and only then would my covenant with my servant David fall apart and his descendants no longer rule. While he struggles in the mud, while Jeremiah wonders and struggles against the doubt that must flood his mind, while he's caught up in the political turmoils, God doubles down and says, this is going to happen. And this is what I'm asking you to proclaim. In the midst of a violation of circumstances beyond imagination and measure, my word is going to come true, even though right now it looks like it anything but. Faith, trust, and hope in the astronomically outrageous promises of God. I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the biblical priest who minister to me, as, make them as countless as the stars and the grains of sand. So, I said, well, let me see if I can find out some things that are countless. So, a few, many of you may be aware, or others read it in the history books, when the Hubble Space Telescope was launched first in the 90s, it was broken. The mirror didn't work. They went up and fixed it a couple of years later and started fixed it when it worked very, very well. They would point it at bodies of the, 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 uni, of the sky and see amazing things. Well, one guy had a great idea. One guy said, well, let's point it at nothing. He said, Hello? It's pointed at nothing. So this brand new space, Hubble, space telescope was fixed, was, went up broken, was fixed, the cost of who knows how many billion dollars and how that translates today. It's probably the salary of the quarterback for, uh, <laughs> but anyway. Uh, um, 
he said, no, we're going to point it at nothing. We're going to look for the darkest part we can find in the sky, and we're going to see what we see. And they did a uh, time lapse. So the light that was traveling in this darkest spot, if there was anything there, would show up. I don't remember how many days it took. It's called Deep Field, if you want to research it or look it up. It's called Hubble Deep Field. You know what they found? This. <laughs> <laughs> they found more stars than they could count. And here's the key. It, I just learned what this is in my research for the message, that it was called the Deep Field, especially, and it was two arc degrees of space. What's two arc degrees of space? Take a pin. Hold a pin up to the sky. As much light is blocked by that pinhead is two arc degrees. In that space, they found billions <laughs> of galaxies. Huh. God's promises are so secure. So I tried to find a follow some links and do some research to find out how many stars people estimate are around the universe. And it's, I stopped, because nobody knows. And they're throwing numbers like zeros, 23 sectillion, and they're names that mean nothing to me, and zeros that just pile up, you know? So I don't remember what, what they are, but gotta say no, I'm doubling down. Despite the fact that you may be in the pit right now, you may be struggling with life, finances, purpose, willingness, disease, struggle, cancer, leukemia, chronic illness. God visits us in the pit and says, my promises are no less secure. You know how secure my promises are? Hold a pinhead to the sky. Can you count the stars behind the pinhead? Back to concluding with our Florida journey together. The same thing goes with the sand of the seashore. I did try to find a way to see how many sands, uh, grains of sand people did, and it was the same stupid thing. <laughs> it's like, I, I got lost in the numbers and the zeros and the names. Uh, most scientists do agree, however, that there's more stars in the sky than sands, uh, grains of sands on the, on the planet Earth. But I have so little confidence that any of that is accurate or correct. You think it is? Yeah. So our mathematician agrees, so we're good to go. So probably, point of that is the Lord takes the biggest, absolute, most outrageous numbers he could find, attributes values to them of stars and grains of sand, which we Floridians know something about, and says, that's what's coming. As we anticipate Christmas, there's a lot of us who will kind of feel uh, uh, missing, like, uh, how come I don't feel like a Hallmark movie? <laughs> God says, because you're not. Whatever pitch you're in, whatever struggles are yours, whatever issues you have to fight against, whatever doubts you have, whatever pain you're in, the Lord made this promise. I'm coming to join you there and make you a promise that will blow your mind, that'll make the stars of the sky and the, seas, the sand of the seashores 
absolutely small by comparison. Let me ask you this. Do you believe it? In Jesus' name, amen.